verse by verse through the gospel of Matthew in a sermon series called Let's Talk About Jesus. And as we come to Matthew chapter 6 this morning, we come to a little bit of a different kind of a passage. And all I mean by that is, as we went through Matthew chapter 5, for the most part, we looked at pretty brief passages of Scripture. That's why it took us 15 sermons to make it all the way through the fifth chapter of the gospel of Matthew. But This morning, as we come to Matthew 6, we're going to look at a long passage, a a really lengthy passage compared to what we've done in the past. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. Now, that might seem odd because you look at that initially and you think, well, Pastor, Jesus is talking about three different things there. He's talking about giving, and then he's talking about praying, and then he's talking about fasting. But while that's true, you don't have to look at it very long to see that really what he's doing is he's using each one of those things as an illustration under one big main point that he's trying to make, and he reveals that point in the very first verse of Matthew chapter 6. And so, uh, I want you to understand that today. If you've got your Bibles turned there and ready there in Matthew chapter 6, go ahead and stand with me like we always do in reverence and respect for God's Word. As we read this passage together, if you're a guest, we're glad you're here. We do, we do this every week. Every week we make a part of our service a time where we have a public reading of the Scripture. And we, because we love and respect the Bible so much, we stand in reverence and respect when we do that. I want you to know if you ever get into a situation where standing is difficult for you, that you don't have to worry, you don't have to stand. Uh, for this. Uh, God uh, knows and understands all of that, and it's not something that would be a concern to me. You do what's right for you. All right, having said that, let's follow along. Remember, the central point Jesus makes is in verse 1, and then he begins to illustrate it with three specific things. And so he says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And that, friends, is the point. And then he begins with the first illustration. So, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Here's illustration number two. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. See this common thread? Do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him." And then, of course, Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer. We're going to skip right over that because this is not a sermon about the Lord's Prayer this morning. It's about Jesus' point in verse 1. So skip down to verse 16. Here's illustration number 3. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. All right, there it is. We always ask God's blessing on the reading of His words. You can be seated this morning. All right. All right. I love that passage of Scripture. Let's talk about what it means to be a hypocrite. In my NIV Bible, Jesus uses the word hypocrites three different times. In verse 2, in verse 5, and verse 16, that's a word that we're familiar with. It gets thrown around a lot. Let's understand it from a biblical perspective. In the original language of the New Testament, the Greek language, 
Our English word hypocrite comes from the Greek word hypokrites. You can see it up there on the screen, hypokrites. And its basic meaning is an actor or stage player. It describes someone, and this is the simplest thing to remember, it describes someone who is a pretender. Now, Jesus gives us his own definition in our text by saying that a hypocrite is someone who does acts of righteousness primarily to be seen by men. In other words, they're not motivated by a sincere heart for God, by trying to please God. They're motivated by the applause and the attention of men. And so the bottom line is they're pretending. They're pretending. They're pretending to be something they're not so that they can get the attention and the applause and the approval of men. You probably heard the old story about the police officer who pulled the driver over one day and asked for his license and registration. The driver was puzzled and said, Officer, what did I do wrong? I didn't go through a red light. I didn't run a stop sign. I wasn't speeding. No, you weren't, said the officer, but I saw you waving your fist as you swerved around the lady in the left lane, and I observed your face flushed and angry, and you were screaming out as you shouted at the SUV who didn't yield when entering the roundabout and almost ran into you when you were already in the roundabout, which any knucklehead knows is not the way you're supposed to do that. And I saw how you pounded on the wheel when that traffic came to a stop near the bridge, and the driver said, well, officer, is that a crime? And the officer said, no, but when I saw your Jesus loves you and so do I bumper sticker, I thought this car had to have been stolen. (laughs) Now, here's what I want you to know. Jesus has zero, everyone say zero, zero tolerance for hypocrisy. Jesus has zero tolerance for hypocrisy, and we find that throughout the Gospel of Matthew. But he illustrates it here. He's very careful to illustrate that truth here in Matthew chapter 6 with three, related to three crucial, crucial disciplines in the Christian life that God wants and expects all of us to embrace. But he wants us to embrace them without self-congratulations and without fanfare. I'm talking about the disciplines, the spiritual disciplines of giving and praying and fasting. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a minute to talk about each one of them. If you're taking notes, write down next to number one. First, Jesus talks about giving. He talks about giving. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, a couple things I want to mention here right from the beginning. First of all, notice that Jesus says in verse 2, so when you give, when you give. And if you look at the entire passage, he uses that word when related to each one of these disciplines. In verse 2, it's so when you give. And in verse 5, it's when you, fa- uh, excuse me, when you pray. And in verse 16, it's when you fast. Jesus is talking about things that he really expects that people who are his disciples, people who are his followers will be involved in. He expects all of us as believers to be involved in giving and generosity. He expects all of us to pray and he expects all of us, as odd as it might sound, at different times in our lives to be involved in the reality of fasting. I've told you over the years when you read your Bible, study your Bible, one of the things that you need to look for is repetition, repetition of words, repetition of principles or statements or commands because that helps you understand the meaning or the application of the passage. And so each one of these things is a spiritual discipline that Jesus expects to be present in our lives. And he starts with giving. We need to understand, first of all, that giving is not an option for somebody who is a follower of Christ. 
I know that there are people who don't give, and I probably know every reason that you cite for not giving, but the bottom line is the Bible commands us to be generous. The Bible tells us that when we give, when we're generous, that God provides back for us, God gives back to us, and sometimes he provides and gives back to us in very generous ways. But, but, as important a truth as that is when it comes to the way we handle the money God entrusts to us, the central truth here that Jesus is addressing is why we give or the motivation for our giving. Remember, the entire passage falls under the umbrella. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. And then he talks about giving. In the first part of verse 2, he says, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the street corners. In other words, don't blow your own horn. Don't toot your own horn. And he goes on to say that when you give like that, whatever, whatever you receive from the people around you that you're trying to impress, whatever approval, whatever attention, whatever applause you get from men for what you're doing is all the rewards you're ever going to get. That's it. That's all you're going to get. The uh, reality is false or hypocritical righteousness, however it shows up, whether it's in giving or whether it's in praying or whether it's in fasting or some other part of the Christian life. False and hypocritical righteousness receives no spiritual and no heavenly reward. None. So if you're doing things just simply to get the attention and the approval and the applause of men, then whatever you get from men is all you're going to get. That's what Jesus is telling us. In fact, what he describes here in this kind of giving is he describes something that's nothing more than a commercial transaction. When he says about this kind of giving that you, whatever you get from the people that you're trying to impress, you've received your reward in full. Those words in full come from a single word in the Greek language. It's the Greek word apeko. It's a technical term that just describes the completion of a commercial transaction. You're not giving. You're buying. You're buying the attention. You're buying the approval. You're buying the applause of the people you're trying to impress. And that's what Jesus is telling us. And so... He gives us an alternative to that in verses 3 and 4. And it's really simple to understand. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, let's just acknowledge something right from the beginning. It's not possible to not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. But how many of you know Jesus uses hyperbole, especially in the Sermon on the Mount? He, He uses strong, exaggerated language to make his points in a strong and an exaggerated way, and that's what he's doing here. He's saying, don't draw attention to your giving. Don't do it in a way where your first priority is to be noticed by men, to impress men. In other, instead, he says, do your giving in secret and trust that God who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And this is something you can count on because, friends, as I said earlier, the Bible promises us over and over again that when we give, when we are generous, that God responds. When we are are generous in our giving, then God rewards us. When we are generous in our giving, then God provides for us. When we are generous in our giving, then God blesses us. And oftentimes, not always... But oftentimes, he does that in very generous ways. And that's a spiritual truth you can count on. And just because there are some people in the world who exaggerate that truth and take it way out of context doesn't mean that it's not still a truth that can be trusted. And that's what we need to remember. The Bible is filled with verses like this. I just put a few of them in my notes, all of them from Proverbs 
The first one is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. You've heard this verse before. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowings and your, overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. So you give God from the top. You make God the priority in your giving and the way you handle money. You make him the priority. Then here's the result. Your barns will be overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. I love this verse from Proverbs eleven twenty four. One man gives freely. Note this. One man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. See, we need to understand that, that God's math doesn't work like the rest of the world's math. God's math says this. You give and you get. You give and you get more. I mean, the world's math says you hold on, and that's the way you get more. But God says you give and you get, you hold on and you lose. And that's what we're taught here in Proverbs 11.24. Proverbs 11.25, one of my favorite verses, it says, A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. He who refreshes others, what's that mean? He who is generous to others will himself be refreshed, will himself be the recipient of generosity. This is the promise of scriptures. And it's a promise that can be trusted when we give from a pure heart. Remember, that's what this is all about. It's a motivation for our giving. The motivation has got to be pure, to, to be pleasing to God. We give because of our love for God. We give because God has given so much to us. Jesus says, don't do it just for the applause of men, just to impress men. You want a genuine, long-lasting, real reward, then you do it with a motivation to be pleasing to God. One final thing I'll say about this passage before we move on to the next one is uh, I, I don't believe this passage, this teaching, even though Jesus literally says uh, in uh, verses 3 and 4, but when you give to the needy, don't let your hand, left hand know what your right hand is doing, and he talks about giving in secret. I don't believe that passage means that it's wrong to, talk, to ever have a time where you talk about giving or you talk about your giving, or you give a testimony about giving or anything like that, because the Bible never contradicts itself, even though the critics of the Bible want to say that it's full of contradictions. And the truth is, in the Bible, we have records where specifics are given related to people's giving. In Acts chapter 2, when the church first started on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, we're told about how all the Christians sold their possessions and gave those possessions, or the money, the proceeds from those possessions to support the needy. We're told about a man named Barnabas in Acts chapter 4 who sold a field and brought the money and gave it to the apostles, presumably to be distributed to the needy. That's just a couple of examples in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we're told in Numbers chapter 7 the specific names of the people who gave money to build the tabernacle. In 1 Chronicles 29, again in the Old Testament, we're told the exact dollar amount of how much the leaders of Israel gave to the building of the temple. So here's my point. What Jesus is focusing on with all of the illustrations, and the first one we're talking about here is the illustration of giving, is the motivation for giving. It's the motive for our giving, why we give, and how wrong it is to give simply to try to impress people, to get the applause or the attention or the approval of the people around us. But that doesn't mean that when you give with right motivations, you can't use stories or testimonies about giving to challenge other people to give as well. I know we have some very generous givers in this church. I know we have a lot of people in this church who don't give anything when they come. I know we have a lot of people who give very little. I know we have a lot of people who, whether they give a little or a lot, they give very inconsistently. I know that for a fact. The only thing I don't know is I don't know who any of you are. And I don't want to know, and I'm never going to know who you are. What I know about giving is I know the statistics of giving related to the number of people that come to our church and the number of people that give, and so on and so on. But I don't know anything about names. 
But teaching you about what the Bible has to say about being a good steward, about how you manage, how you handle the money God has entrusted to you, if you've been here for any length of time, you know that's a really big deal to me. That's very important to me. And so every year we have a time where we talk about this. And when I challenge you to give because we have a huge ministry here. We have a ministry here that impacts the world. We do so much with the resources God entrusts us. In 2017, we gave just under $2 million to mission partners here in this one single church, just under $2 million, $1.95 million we gave away to mission partners. This is a big deal. And so when I talk to you about giving and I talk to you about being generous, I always, I always tell you I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I'm not willing to get to do. And I tell you that my wife Sandy and I, for many, many years, we give over and above 10% back to this church. And I tell you my wife Sandy and I, every lifestyle decision we make, and what you mean by that is the, the level of lifestyle we live, every lifestyle choice we make is first dependent upon our ability to still be generous. And I, but I'm not trying to impress you because I don't care what you think about that. I'm just trying to challenge you and lead you. And this is what we're talking about here. Jesus is talking about, listen, don't do things just to be seen by men because there's no real reward in that. There'll be no heavenly reward in that. There's no spiritual reward in that. Whatever reward you'll receive is just whatever approval you get from the people you're trying to impress. And at the end of the day, how long is that going to last? Tell me. It's not going to last any time at all. Well, then he goes on and he gives us a second illustration. So right down next to number two, second, Jesus talks about praying. And this is a section of Scripture that contains some of the most well-known verses in the Bible because it contains the Lord's Prayer. But I'm going to tell you, I'm not preaching on the Lord's Prayer today. I'm preaching about guarding and protecting yourself against hypocrisy. And Jesus says that another way that hypocrisy shows up in the lives of many people is when they pray simply, again, just like with giving, to be seen by men. This is the common thread that runs through the passage. Look back at verses 5 through 8. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners. And here it is, to be seen by men. And here's the other common thread. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. And so if you pray just simply to be seen by men, just simply for the attention and the approval and the applause of men, that that attention and that approval and that applause is all the rewards you're going to ever get. And I'm going to say it again, the same thing I said a moment ago. There is no spiritual and no heavenly reward for hypocritical righteousness. None. None. No reward from God for those kinds of things. And this is what Jesus is concerned about. And so just like he did with giving, he, 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 gives, he gives a contrast. He tells us the wrong way to do it. That's what he says there in verse 5. Uh, and then he gives us the right way to do it. And we pick it up in verse 6 again. He says, but when you pray... Go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So the wrong way is to stand in the synagogue and stand on the street corner and pray simply to be seen by men. Now, everybody pause here and look up at me, okay? I'm going to tell you something. In ancient days, devout Jews prayed in the synagogue. They stood and prayed in the synagogue, and devout Jews prayed on the street corners because they stopped and prayed when the hour of prayer came. But not all of them did that simply to be seen by men. Many of them did that because that was the devout thing to do. But then there were those who did it in a way that made it clear that they were making a big presentation and a big scene simply 
to be seen by men, that the audience that they were focused on was not God, and God is the audience when we pray, right? Everyone say, right. The audience they were focused on were the people around them, and that's what we need to understand here, okay? That's what Jesus is talking about, and so he gave us that instruction about uh, being praying in secret. He gave us that instruction about going into your room. I'm sure all of us understands that. All of us understand what it means to kind of have a prayer room, or I think older translations talk about a prayer closet, someplace private that you go to pray. Now, it doesn't have to literally be a room for you. It doesn't have to literally be a closet for you, but all of us probably have some place where we go in private when we really want to commune with God, when we really want to talk to God. It could be a number of different places. That's really what Jesus is talking about here. When we get alone with God so we can talk to God alone. We're not worried about being seen by anybody else. We're not worried about impressing anybody. We're not even worrying about impressing God. We just want to talk to God because he's our audience. So when you go, Jesus says, when you pray, go into a room, your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then Jesus added this other teaching about praying. In the next verse, he says, this is verse 7, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling. That's just a reference to repeating words, repetition of words over and over again, like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of, your many, of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. I'm going to talk, I'm going to just mention something briefly about this because it, it, it strikes a chord with me, and maybe if it strikes a chord with me, it will with you as well. You know, the problem here is not that Jesus is opposed to long prayers. It's not that Jesus is opposed to public prayers or anything like that. Matt, like that. That's not the issue at all. The problem, again, remember, with all of this, with every illustration, the problem is our motivation. Our motivation for giving, our motivation for praying, and we'll see it in a minute, our motivation for fasting. Whether or not we're sincere or whether we're trying to impress the people around us, but there have been times in my life where I felt a little bit of tension, a little bit of tension in my life, in my prayer life, because there are times when I think that I've fallen to a, 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 a habit of repetition with my praying. You ever been there? And, uh, you know, because when I pray, um, I pray about a lot of the same things. And when I pray about a lot of the same things, I use the same words. And I find myself saying those same words over and over again. Now, <clears throat> that's, in, that's true in particular with some specific prayers that I've been praying for years. I've been praying, I've got things in my life I've been praying about for years, and you probably have as well, okay? And, uh, and I'm going to keep praying for those things until there's some kind of a, an answer. Because I know, I know in my heart that the things I'm praying for are the will of God. For example, let's say you're praying for somebody that you know and love who is not saved. Well, the Bible says it's the will of God for all men everywhere to be saved, right? There's no question about that. So we never stop praying for the salvation of the people that we love. We never stop praying about the, for the salvation of the people that we care about. But there's other things, too, that we pray about because not only do we believe it's the will of God, but we also believe uh, that uh, it, there's no selfish motivation in that. We're genuinely praying about something that we, from the most sincere heart, we want to see happen uh, for the, in the best interest of somebody that we love and care about. But what I find is that I, 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 I'll stop sometimes thinking, you know what, this, I, I, those are the exact same words I said about this yesterday and the day before and the month before, and sometimes I pray about those things multiple times a day. And so sometimes when I pray, I will literally say, and God, I'm not trying, this is not vain repetition with me. I'm just not smart enough to know how to say this in a different way every time. I don't think we should worry about that because God, remember, this is all about God's 
talking about the motivation of our hearts. And I think that's also true because then he gives us in this text what we call the Lord's Prayer. Now, if ever there could be an example of of vain repetition, it could be somebody just memorizing the Lord's Prayer and saying that prayer over and over and over and over again, thinking that satisfied our need for prayer with God. But the Lord's Prayer is more of a model prayer than anything else. But I'm not preaching about the Lord's Prayer today. I preached a whole sermon on the Lord, series on the Lord's Prayer uh, uh, some years ago, and I'm sure that's still available through the Resource Center if you're interested in that. And I'm hopeful that I can circle back around before we leave Matthew chapter 6 and talk about the Lord's Prayer. But the thing is, we just remember that what God is focused on and what Jesus is really trying to say is that when we pray, remember his expectation is that we pray, just like his expectation is that we give. When we pray, that our hearts, our motives are right. We're not praying to impress men. We're praying because we love God. God is our only audience. Then the third thing, the third illustration, write down this. Third, Jesus talks about fasting. And we see that back in verses 16 through 18. And again, the familiar when, when you fast. So just like with giving, just like with praying, God's expectation is that this is a spiritual discipline that will have a place in our lives. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, here's the other thing that's repeated all throughout this. Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You know, a really big part of this comes down to this. Do we trust that God sees and rewards what we do that maybe only God knows about? This is what we need to remember. This is the challenge, okay? And so he talks about fasting. Now, fasting is different than the first two. It's not nearly as common as giving. It's not nearly as common as praying. And you know the other interesting thing about fasting? I want you to think about this with me. Fasting, when giving is commanded in the Scripture, praying is commanded in the Scripture, fasting is nowhere commanded in the Scripture. Do you know that? Fasting is nowhere commanded in the Scripture, but Jesus says, when you fast. I think that's an interesting thing for us to think about. He says, when you fast, then make sure you do it from a pure heart. Make sure you do it with the right motivation, not trying to impress people around you, but simply as a part of your spiritual commitment to God. He said, if you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. He said, when you fast, uh, don't, don't make men your target. You know, in ancient days, religious leaders fasted a lot. In fact, uh, Pharisees fasted twice a week. You remember the parable in Luke chapter 18 about the uh, Pharisee and the tax collector? The parable, Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to pray one day, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. And he began by focusing on the Pharisee. And he said, the Pharisee began by saying this. This is how he began his prayer. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Remember that? Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Robbers, remember? Evildoers, adulterers, and he said, or even like this tax collector. And then do you remember what he said about himself next? He said, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. That's how he described himself. I thank you that I'm not like other men, and I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. Fasting was a common thing in the life of the Pharisees, the religious leaders in Jesus' day. But when they fasted, it's clear from what Jesus says that they tried to draw attention to themselves by looking as miserable as possible. And Jesus is simply saying, don't do that. Don't be like them. The Bible gives us lots of examples of people fasting, but not like Jesus describes here with the religious leaders. 
You can find lots of examples. Here's the way I've always described fasting. I know it's a very simple explanation, but I think it's accurate. Write this down in your notes. I've described fasting like this. It's moving one thing out of your life to make more room for God in your life for whatever period of time you choose. It's moving one thing out of your life to make more room for God in your life. And we fast for a lot of different reasons. We fast for a period of time to show a greater level of devotion to God. We fast to draw closer to God. We fast as a way to purify our hearts. We fast as a way to demonstrate repentance for sin. We fast to become more sensitive to God. We fast when we're seeking answers from God, something that's especially important to us. And we're looking for the answer to prayer. There are many reasons why we fast. And you can fast from multiple things. We always think about fasting involving food, which is good because for most people, there's really honestly no better way to show how serious you are about something than by being willing to skip a meal. I mean, as sad as that sounds, that's really true. But you can fast from all kinds of things. I think in today's day and age especially, you can fast from television. You can fast from uh, Internet. You can fast from social media. A lot of you ought to think about fasting from social media. You can fast from just about anything that's important to you. And this is what he's talking about. And the thing that Jesus says is most important, just like with giving, just like with praying, is that we do it with a right This is what's the key. Remember how the text began? Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. This is the key. Now, I want to try to draw this all together here at the end by telling you uh, four reasons why hypocrisy, what Jesus is talking about, is so dangerous. Four ways that hypocrisy can damage our lives. And Brian, you can come and we'll get ready to close. I got four things written down in my notes here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about each one of them because they're pretty self-explanatory. But the first one is this. These are, these are four, four dangers related to hypocrisy. Number one, hypocrisy damages our relationship with God. And I think that's the most important thing. Hypocrisy damages our relationship with God. And you know why I say that? Because hypocrisy, first and foremost, is a form of deceit. And the Bible makes it clear that God hates deceit. In fact, look at these words on the screen from Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 22. Proverbs 12, 22 says, The Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in men who are truthful. God hates liars. He hates deceit. And hypocrisy, first and foremost, is deceitful. And so it damages our relationship with God. God doesn't bless a life that's filled with lies and deceit. The second thing I wrote down is hypocrisy damages us, and it does. Because the more we pretend to be something we're not, the easier it becomes for us to do, and all of a sudden, we begin to lose perspective on who we really are. The more we pretend to be something we're not, the easier it becomes... And before you know it, we lose perspective on who we really are. Listen, I know we talked about hypocrisy uh, from Jesus' words because we went through the text today in terms of giving and in terms of praying and in terms of fasting. But let me just tell you this. If you come to church, nobody's a bigger proponent of the importance of coming to church than me. But if you come to church every week just simply to be seen by men or just simply to to try to check something off your, your list or simply because you think it looks good, then... You're wasting your time. There's no, there's no blessing or reward that comes from that. Hypocrisy damages us because it causes us not to be in touch with who we really are. Because we're going to be the ones that ultimately start to believe the lie about ourselves. And that's all it is, a lie. 
The third thing I wrote down is hypocrisy damages our fellowship with other Christians. Let me just ask you a simple question. You ever had a friend, a Christian brother or sister that you trusted, that you admired, that you thought was as committed as you were to the same things that you're committed to, only to find out that they're not? only to have them betray your trust, only to find out that they are just going through the motions, that they didn't have your same level of shared commitment? Well, I'll tell you, I have more times than I like to think about, and it is heartbreaking. It is brutally painful. I can't tell you how many times I've been involved with folks in church that I thought were my friend, that I thought I could trust, that I thought were deeply committed to the Lord, were deeply committed to the Lord's church, were deeply committed to promoting the Lord's church and building the kingdom, only to find out that wasn't true. And it's devastating when that happens. It's heartbreaking. And so hypocrisy damages our fellowship with other Christians. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12 and verse 9, it says, love must be sincere. It's got to be real. I mean, if you've ever been been betrayed by anybody in any circumstance, you know how heartbreaking that is. Because to be really close to someone, you have to be able to trust them. And hypocrisy damages our fellowship with other Christians. Let me give you one last thing. Hypocrisy damages our witness. And this is devastating as well. Hypocrisy damages our witness. I heard a story years ago when I was a student in Bible college. That's how long ago this was, which that was now. I went to, Bible, I went to college in 1976. This is years and years ago, but it always has stuck with me. I've heard lots of stories over the years that I didn't remember, but I've always remembered this one. So there was a preacher in a rural area who served a county, just a country preacher in a country church. And there was a guy in the county who was a hog farmer, and he had bad dealings, a bad interaction with one of the members of the church, and it left a bad taste in his mouth, and he wasn't a believer, so he took advantage of every opportunity he had after that to tell everybody that he met that that church was just full of a bunch of hypocrites, that there was just nothing but hypocrites in that church. And he badmouthed that church over and over and over again until one day the preacher of that church just had enough. And so he got in his pickup truck, and he drove over to this guy's farm. Remember, he was a hog farmer. He said, I need to buy a hog. Let me see your hogs. And so he took him to the first pen that was just filled with just champion, like champion hogs. I mean, fat hogs, good grunting, whatever you do, hogs. They smelled bad, everything good about it, you know. He said, these are my best hogs. And he examined every one of them, and he said, are these all the hogs you have? And he said, no. And so he took him to another pen. And these were some really good grade-A hogs, too. They just weren't quite as good as the first ones, you know, maybe not quite as fat. They didn't smell quite as bad, whatever it might be that decides whether or not a good hog is is good. He said, these are all the hogs you had. He said, well, no. And he took them to a third pen. And again, they were not quite as good as the second and certainly not quite as good as the first. He said, are these all the hogs you have? And he said, well, I got one last pen. He took them to a pen. And this pen was full of skinny, diseased, lame, blind, you think of it, you know, hogs. They were pathetic looking hogs. And the preacher stood there until he found the worst hog in that final pen. And he said, that's the one I want. And he paid his money, and he loaded up that sick, diseased, lame hog in the back of his pickup truck. And the hog farmer said, listen, I just got to ask you, I got the best hogs in all the county. You've looked at all of my good hogs, and you picked the worst one that I have. Why in the world did you buy this one? And the preacher said, because now I'm going to drive all over the county and tell everybody I see these are the kind of hogs you sell. (laughs) Are there hypocrites in every church? Yeah, starting with me. I mean, if we're going to be honest... 
I'd be lying if I told you today that there was never a moment in my life when hypocrisy didn't sneak into my life on some level where I didn't say I was one thing and then live out another thing. All of us. And this is damaging to the testimony of the church. Brennan Manning once wrote these words. They're chilling words. He wrote, The single most cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips but walk out of the church doors and deny him with their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. But here's the deal, and here's how we'll close. You know what? There's hope for hypocrites like me and like you. And that hope is Jesus, who is so full of love and so full of grace and so full of mercy and so full of forgiveness that even when we ignore and disobey the clear instructions that he gives us, like here in Matthew chapter 6, he still loves us and he still forgives us and he still covers with us his grace and mercy, hoping that we'll be better tomorrow and better the next day and the next. And that's the message that I have. Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites. Trust God. Trust God. And be real. Let's pray together. Father, thanks so much for a chance to talk about